Thank you, everyone, uh, for coming, and thanks to Alex for uh, inviting me. Um, I feel privileged to be taking part in uh, this seminar series, which I think is profiling precisely the breadth and depth of uh, historical materialist analysis that is going on across the field of international relations. Uh, and it's a privilege to uh, participate alongside uh, people like Robbie Shillian last week, uh, Rob Knox and Peter Thomas in forthcoming weeks, also editors of historical materialism and leading thinkers in the field. And I think uh, it's uh, an exemplary series uh, in profiling uh, precisely what historical materialism can bring uh, to bear in the debates against uh, mainstream approaches to uh, the discipline. So what I want to do today is to basically introduce the origins of the two book projects that uh, I've been working on and that were just both of which were published this year um, to sketch out the political motivation uh, behind them, the intellectual motivation behind them, and then to advance in a, at least a cursory way some of the central arguments uh, that I make in the books. And particularly I'm going to focus on from rebellion to reform in Bolivia because it uh, addresses some of the more contemporary issues uh, that may have motivated you to, to be here tonight. So I'm going to speak mostly on the, on, the, on the current period. So I first visited Bolivia in 2000 and started studying the country closely in 2002 and visited uh, almost every year since then, living in the capital La Paz in 2005 and 2006 as part of my uh, research for my doctoral dissertation at the University of Toronto. And the PhD project was initially intended to cover left indigenous struggle between 2000 and 2005, but to at the same time situate, situate it in its long historical context. But during the time I was living in the country, Evo Morales was elected, as I'll discuss in a moment, and so I decided to extend the analysis into an investigation of the political economy of his new government and its political relationship with the social movements uh, that I had been working with uh, over my, uh, my stay in La Paz and in the neighboring Shantitana del Alto. So soon, uh, as, as may, may or should have been predictable, the project became somewhat unwieldy, uh, and I handed in my dissertation at 900 pages at the end of 2005, um, and my supervisor kindly read the, the thing and, and liked it, uh, but suggested that it be 400 pages in length. So after psychologically navigating this, this trauma for about two weeks, I decided I had, I had two projects uh, it, that were sort of masquerading as one. So I took the theoretical analysis of a social movement struggles and left indigenous relations between 2000 and 2005, and the long, uh, the long durée of capitalist development and the incorporation of Bolivia into the, into the world market over the last few centuries, and the processes of state formation and resistance to state formation and capitalist development in the country, and I made that the, the historical focus of my dissertation. Um, and it was that project that I then revised into Red October, Left Indigenous Struggles in Modern Bolivia. So that project ends right before uh, 
uh, Morales comes to office, and it's really this long, uh, this long, a focus on the long trajectory of capitalist development, state formation, and popular cultures of resistance and opposition, focusing on uh, indigenous traditions of rebellion on the one hand, stretching back to the 18th century, and uh, modern uh, revolutionary Marxist traditions, really tracing back to the early 20th century, and principally with the rise of tin mining capitalism at the turn of the century uh, in, in Bolivia. And the, the, the tin mines became the central pivot of Marxist uh, struggle uh, and tradition in the country. I then decided to adapt some of what I had written on the political economy of the Morales administration into a more overtly political book which attempts to, to both make theoretical interventions within left debates that are still going on inside the country in Bolivia, and at the same time to engage and hopefully inform both activists and scholarly readers inside the, uh, the core countries uh, in the world system about the significance and the character of the Morales government. And this project effectively became From Rebellion to Reform in Bolivia. So it focuses principally on questions of political economy and principally on the period 2006 to 2010, the period in which Morales has at first assumed office and completed his first term. So the principal objective of the, of the second book, uh, of which I'm going to speak most today, is essentially an exposure and an interrogation of what I see as two caricatures of the Bolivian process that have predominated uh, in the literature today, the literature both popular and academic. So on the one side, you have a right-wing caricature that you can find in uh, mainstream uh, liberal and conservative uh, media outlets, the New York Times, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, across the board, uh, and also in liberal and conservative scholarly literature uh, across the mainstream social sciences about the Bolivian process. And in this caricature, you have Evo Morales presented as an authoritarian populist in league with Hugo Chavez, Fidel Castro, uh, the, the principal bogeyman of the region, and you see him in this literature as a threat to the sanctity of private property rights, the, uh, the institutionality of liberal good governance, and uh, a threat to all of the advances in market reform and so on over the last 20, 25 years in the country. That's one caricature uh, of the process. The other caricature, uh, which I'll spend more time on tonight, because the first one is so trivial that it doesn't deserve much uh, appreciation, but I, I, I'm willing to talk about it in the Q&A. But what I want to focus on principally is debates on the left, and that is to say a caricature uh, on the left that suggests effectively a romantic celebratory stance toward anything and everything that Evo Morales does and effectively a reproduction of communiques from the presidential palace in La Paz without any kind of critical analysis of the actually unfolding process in the country and the contradictions of the political economy therein. 
So I'm going to move now to a couple of the main arguments um, I want to make. And I'm not sure how familiar everyone is, is in the room uh, with the Bolivian context, so I'll say a few words that are sort of necessary in order to situate ourselves. So the first thing to say is that Bolivian popular movements have been at the cutting edge of resistance to neoliberalism in Latin America in recent years. And Latin America, in turn, has been the region of the world most militantly opposed to the neoliberal phase of world capitalist development and the social depravities uh, made manifest in the, in the unfolding of that political economy. Radical left indigenous movements rose up in Bolivia in an insurrectionary cycle with a breadth and intensity unparalleled, at least in the Western Hemisphere, in the first five years of the current century. The popular upheavals of the water war against privatization in 2000 in the city of Cochabamba began, I would argue, to turn the tide against what had been the previous 15 years of almost uncontested uh, neoliberal assault, one of the most aggressive orthodox neoliberal restructuring campaigns in the entire region. The water war was followed by the ousting of two neoliberal presidents uh, in the so-called gas wars of 2003 and 2005, through which mass extra-parliamentary mobilizations saw the overthrow of Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada first in October 2003, probably the most hated Bolivian president in recent memory, who left uh, on a plane to Miami at about 7% popularity uh, in 2003. And then 14 months later, his vice president who had assumed office, uh, uh, Carlos Mesa, uh, was overthrown uh, once again in the so-called second gas war. And these were called gas wars because of the centrality of the demand to renationalize the natural gas industry. Natural, natural gas deposits in Bolivia being second only to Venezuela in the entire South American region. So the principal commodity upon which the economy turns. So these were about renationalization of gas, but they were about much more than that. But the popular slogan of the day was renationalization of gas, and this is where uh, the moniker comes. So all of this tumult between 2000 and 2005 laid the basis for Evo Morales' successful bid to become the country's first indigenous president as leader of the Movimiento Socialismo, or Movement Towards Socialism Party, in the December 2005 elections. He then consolidated this position four years later with 64% of the popular vote in December 2009 uh, on a unprecedented 90% voter turnout. So these extra-parliamentary and electoral dynamics between 2000 and 2005 were taking place in South America's poorest country and in a country where 60 to 70% of the population, depending on what statistical databases you rely on, continue to live below the official poverty line, where 62% of the population uh, very uniquely uh, continue to self-identify as indigenous. The only similar country in all of Latin America would be Guatemala in this regard, in which a majority of the population, uh, indigenous population, survived uh, the conquest of the Spanish, and where racial oppression of this indigenous majority 
is intricately intertwined with class exploitation of that same majority through the racialized form that capitalism has assumed in that social formation. So an analytical framework for understanding both the insurrectionary cycle between 2000 and 2005, and most importantly, because it is the most understudied component, the political economic trajectory of the movement towards socialism party uh, and government during its first term, 2006 to 2010, is, I want to suggest, more urgently required than ever before. It is necessary to consistently separate image from reality, rebellion from reform, with empirical and historical clarity, and in fundamental solidarity with the aims of anti-imperialist, socialist, and indigenous liberationist transformation in the country and elsewhere in the region. What becomes clear, I think, through an honest appraisal of the historical record is that the less indigenous insurrectionary period between 2000 and 2005 did indeed achieve what amounted to a revolutionary epic, even if its main protagonists have not yet achieved a social revolution. So Daniel Ben Said, the French Marxist theorist, summed up in a singular phrase the theorization of such a historical moment, a historical period of revolutionary epic, in the works of Lenin and Trotsky. He wrote, it is defined by an interaction between several variable elements in a situation. When those above can no longer govern, govern as they did before, when those below will not tolerate being oppressed as they were before, and when this double impossibility is expressed by a sudden effervescence of the masses. So in Bolivia, this expressed itself in a crisis of state and economy from above and an explosion of left indigenous popular politics from below at the outset of the 21st century. So on the one hand, South America as a whole enters into its deepest recession since the so-called lost decade of the 1980s between 1998 and 2000. The crisis begins in Brazil and Argentina, two of Bolivia's main markets for exports, and then reverberates into other countries, including Bolivia, which was already coping with the domestic dynamics of its internal crisis of neoliberalism that had first been introduced in the country in 1985. So you see a steep recession after 15 years already of massive dispossession of peasant land, an acceleration of proletarianized peasants into the urban shanty towns. You see a recession coming on the heels of growing inequality for 15 years, growing levels of poverty, growing levels of unemployment, and so on. And the answer of the Bolivian ruling class to this crisis of 1998 to 2000 was the acceleration rather than the transcendence of the neoliberal project. So the problem for them was not that liberalization, financialization, and so on had gone too far, but rather that it hadn't gone far enough. And this was perhaps most boldly introduced in the city of Cochabamba, where uh, the very basic source of life, that is water, was commodified, something that was, had been unimaginable up until that point. So this, out of this comes the water war, the urban rebellion in Cochabamba, that successfully overturns the World Bank-driven privatization project 
of water in that city. And because of that first victory of left indigenous forces, the first victory in 15 years, it lays the basis for the slow but steady rearticulation of left indigenous forces throughout the country over the next five years. The water war was followed, as I suggested, by the so-called gas wars of 2003 and 2005, and the overthrow of two presidents through mass mobilization. Electorally, you see over this process, the three main neoliberal parties, the MNR, the MIR, and the ADN, the three that had governed since 1985 in various coalitional and pact pacted governments, you see them uh, shrink and implode electorally, both at uh, municipal level elections and at national elections over the course of these five years, unable to articulate any kind of alternative to the neoliberal ideology that was massively delegitimized, de not only in Bolivia, but elsewhere in the region, as we can witness with the massive uh, urban rebellions in Argentina at the outset of the century, various heads of state being overthrown in Ecuador, the election of Hugo Chavez, and the and the massive regional so-called pink tide of both extra-parliamentary rebellions but also electoral expressions of a move away from neoliberalism. So this was a revolutionary epic in Bolivia in the sense that there was a real possibility of fundamentally overhauling the structures of exploitation and domination embedded in the Bolivian state, society, and economy and the imbrications with regional and imperial structures of power. But this revolutionary epic, as is the case of all revolutionary epics, represented possibility and contingency rather than inevitable victory. And unfortunately, the process in this case did not lead to a social revolution. As politics shifted from the streets to the electoral terrain after the May-June 2005 revolts, and the lead-up to the December 2005 elections, we witnessed the common turn towards a dampening of revolutionary possibilities as social movements demobilized and a moderate political party, the movement towards socialism, came to office. So despite its impressive capacity to mobilize and its far-reaching anti-capitalist and indigenous liberationist objectives, the left indigenous extra-parliamentary bloc that existed between 2000 and 2005, lacked a revolutionary party that might have provided the leadership, strategy, and ideological coherence necessary to overthrow the existing capitalist state and rebuild a new sovereign power rooted in self-governance of the overwhelmingly indigenous proletarian and peasant majority. As a consequence, the fallout of the extraordinary mobilizations and profound crisis of the state that we witnessed between 2000 and 2005 was not a revolutionary transformation, but a shift in popular politics from the streets and countryside to the electoral arena as elections were moved up to the 18th of December of 2005. And those elections in that December cataloged, on the one hand, the demise of traditional neoliberal parties, that those three parties of the MNR, the MIR, and the ADN, and illustrated in Bolivia a popular rejection of their political and economic legacies. There were no parties so associated with the neoliberal legacy as these three, all of which imploded into almost nothing over the 2005 elections. Unfortunately, though, 
Given its changing class composition, ideology, and programmatic strategy over the few years leading up to those elections, the party the masses elected into the state apparatus, that is to say, the Movimiento Socialismo, or Movement Towards Socialism Party of Evo Morales, had moderated itself dramatically since its origins in the mid to late 1990s. The election of Evo Morales then signified, on the one hand, an historic blow against what I argue was informal apartheid race relations in the country and was rightly celebrated on that front domestically and internationally as a major democratic step forward for the country. It was literally unimaginable a decade earlier that an indigenous president, that an indigenous man could become president. But it was also true and harder for many, particularly those on the international left, to come to terms with that the movement towards socialism party had long since abandoned the perspective of simultaneous liberation from class exploitation and racial oppression of the indigenous majority. What I call in the book the combined liberation struggle of the 2000 to 2005 period. Rather, the party had shifted ideologically and programmatically toward a crude model of stages where a much thinner cultural decolonization of race relations was promised immediately while socialism was de deferred to a distant future. So nowhere is this more clearly expressed than the Vice President Alvaro Garcia Linera in his conception of Andean Amazonian capitalism. In Andean Amazonian capitalism, a phrase that the party no longer uses because it failed to capture the imaginations, but nonetheless most clearly expresses the, the actual program of the party. In the main articles in which the vice president, a former Marxist intellectual of the country, lays out these foundations, what he suggests is we're going, we're going to embrace a cultural liberation of indigenous majority, but we need, as in the Stalinist uh, Communist Party program of Bolivia historically, a advanced interregnum of industrial of industrial capitalist growth prior to the possibility of a socialist transformation of the means of production in 50 to 100 years. 50 to 100 years being the exact periodization that the vice president suggested. So on that basis, it should perhaps have been less surprising than it was for many that the first year of the Morales government saw only modest breaks with the inherited neoliberal orthodoxies, limited essentially to foreign relations with Cuba and Venezuela through a series of trade relations and so on, a break, although only temporarily, with the International Monetary Fund and its various conditionalities, and in domestic policy over the question of the hydrocarbon sector, which in 2006 uh, it called the nationalization of natural gas, but which was in fact a relatively minor increase in taxes and royalties paid by multinationals to the state. The new model of development under Morales has abandoned features of neoliberal orthodoxy, but retains its core faith in the capitalist market as the principal engine of growth and industrialization. Precarious and flexible labor conditions have persisted and indeed constitute 
a fundamental premise of the economic strategy of the Morales regime. The development model that has actually unfolded over the entire four years of the first mass administration between 2006 to 2010, and I would argue into the first two years of its second administration, are best understood by locating it within wider debates that have exploded across the global south since the early to mid-1990s. A crisis of neoliberal legitimacy has made itself increasingly visible over this period, however unevenly, across large swaths of the global south. And the latest crisis of global capitalism, beginning in its international phase in 2008, has merely accelerated this trend. Now the response of ruling classes, I'm talking about obviously unevenly, but on an international level, and the organic intellectuals doing their intellectual work, has been adaptation, not transformation, of the neoliberal project. A new consensus has therefore emerged since the mid-1990s in political economy circles, in the main figures of the international financial institutions, the principal state managers of most of the global south, which suggested that unbridled market fundamentalism, that is to say the orthodox period of neoliberalism, had been insufficient and was unsustainable in light of the intense social conflicts it was tending to produce. In Latin America, the massive wave of social conflict that, were, that was unleashed by the 1998 to 2002 recession and that was not ultimately completely overcome with the 2003 to 2008 commodities boom. The best way to facilitate the full flourishing of the market, the new consensus argues, is to embed the market in a coherent set of institutions with a more active state that engineers subtle movements in Adam Smith's famous invisible hand. So the state might even need to take control directly or indirectly of the means of production and allocation in order for the market to perform. Internationally, the latest development approach is most commonly known as neo-institutionalism and has found expression in the works of Hadrian Chang, Atul Kohli, Alice Amsden, etc., Joseph Stiglitz, and is effectively the recovery of what we might call a neolistian economics, looking back to Liszt's debates with Marx, a neolistian economics. But in Latin America, it is more frequently called and understood to be neostructuralism, and has been associated specifically with the institutions around the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, or ECLAC, for its English acronym. And the turn towards neostructuralism within ECLAC since the mid-1990s. So for example, just to show the, the, the depth of the influence of this, uh, of this school of thought across various state leaders of different ideological hues, when Hugo Chavez was in prison, he famously read the works of Sunkel and so on, the main leading economists of neostructuralism, from his jail cell, and still cites them today, although now alongside various Marxist figures and contemporaries. 
What I want to argue is that while neostructuralism signifies an advance away from neoliberal orthodoxies, it continues to obfuscate key components of class relations under capitalism and mischaracterizes the state as a neutral actor fairly arbitrating between perennially conflicting basically equal interest groups. The state's role in reproducing the conditions for accumulation and enabling the generation of profits for private capital is concealed, as is the state's repressive role in policing the inevitable class conflicts, struggles, and explosions of resistance that occur in response to the exploitation, alienation, and dispossession inherent to capitalist society. In reality, then, the state maintains capitalist order and seeks to regulate its social contradictions, and it does so in the economic and political interests of the ruling class. Class exploitation and the state repression it frequently necessitates are constituent elements of capitalism as a system, not episodic or anomalous phenomena as neostructuralists like to imagine. The neostructural shift in the theory and practice of political economy across Latin America has played itself out in the Bolivian context in ways quite specific to that country. As early as the first year of the Morales administration, there were clear signs of deep continuities with the inherited neoliberal model. Over the next three years, 2007 to 2010, we witnessed the deepening and consolidation of the initial trend to what I call in the book a reconstituted neoliberalism. This is a tendency, I want to stress, not a law, and the trajectory of the Bolivian economy clearly continues to be subject to the changing dynamics of domestic and regional class struggles, formations, and alliances, as well as the changing character of global capitalism and geopolitical strategies of large imperial powers in the hierarchical world system of states. With that said, it is still important to record the observable and structural trends toward the consolidation of reconstituted neoliberalism in the first term of the Morales government, and I think we can say safely today, the push even further in the first two years of its second administration since January 2010 until the present. So most of Morales' first four years can be described from an economic perspective as high growth and low spending. Prior to the fallout of the world economic crisis, which really started to impact Bolivia in late 2008 and early 2009, the country's gross domestic product had grown at an average of 4.8% under Morales. It peaked at 6.1% in 2008 and dropped to an estimated 3.5% in 2009, which was still the highest projected growth rate in the entire region that year. The growth was based principally on high international prices in hydrocarbons, especially natural gas, and various mining minerals common in Bolivia within the context of a generalized commodities boom that most of South America was experiencing. Government revenue in this context increased dramatically, not least because of the changes to the hydrocarbons tax and royalty regime that I talked about in 2006, 
and that is described by the government as nationalization. The radical character, the seemingly radical character of that uh, policy initiative in 2006 came across as, as radical as it did precisely because it occurred at a conjuncture in which the price of natural gas was massively spiking on the international market. So not only were they taking in a greater proportional uh, chunk of the profits from MNCs, but it was occurring at a time in which the gross level of revenue being generated from that industry was massively spiking. But fiscal policy in this context remained austere until the global crisis struck. So Morales ran budget surpluses, tightly reined in inflation, indeed with a goal of less than 2% inflation, lower than the rates normally assumed in conditionality loans by the International Monetary Fund, and accumulated massive international reserves by Bolivian standards, rather than investing in various projects with the surplus that was generated. You did see public investment in infrastructure, particularly road building, increase quite significantly, but social spending rose only modestly in absolute terms and actually declined as a percentage of GDP under Morales. So because of the commodities boom, the overall gross spending on social, uh, on social services increased relative to the orthodox neoliberal period, but as a proportion of that more massively growing economy, it actually shrunk. Fiscal policy then changes between 2008 and 2009 as a consequence of a sharp stimulus package designed to prevent recession in the face of the global crisis. But the social consequences of reconstituted neoliberalism since 2006 up until that point have been almost no change in poverty rates under Morales, although there are debates about the measurement of this and so on, as is always the case. But even fewer debates, or at least serious debates, on the question of inequality measured by the Gini coefficient, which measures in income inequality, having hardly changed over the Morales period, and with actual inequality, if we look at assets, being much, much more concentrated than the Gini coefficient reveals. So both of these axes, inequality and poverty, persist as monumental obstacles standing in the way of basic social justice in the country. So never mind debates about whether or not we're witnessing a transition towards post-neoliberalism, much less a transition towards socialist production, but we're talking about very basic questions of whether or not any kind of measure of social justice has in fact uh, been enhanced under a self-proclaimed communitarian socialist regime. One of the dominant theoretical and practical innovations of Latin American neostructural economic theory has been what they perversely call proactive labor flexibility or the prioritization of state efforts to build consensus among workers around submission to the imperatives of export-led capitalist development in a fiercely competitive world system. So states in this context attempt to co-opt and re-engineer labor movements 
so that they abandon class struggle in favor of a, a cross-class cooperation and stability in labor-state relations. This synergistic relationship is thought to make all social classes quote-unquote winners under the development model and advance what they call systemic competitiveness of the country as it, is, as it inserts itself ever more deeply into international markets. So you can read about proactive labor flexibility and systemic competitiveness throughout the ECLAC documents since the mid-1990s. And what systemic competitiveness means is that the entire social formation is what is, com is what is competing in the world economy against other social formations, not simply uh, the economic focus on comparative advantage or trade. It is the entire balance of class forces and the taming of the labor movement and so on that will uh, obtain the correct systemic competitiveness in this logic. In Bolivia, under the movement towards socialism, this framework of systemic competitiveness, although not called this by the regime, has taken the form of strategic co-optation and division of labor and peasant movements on the part of state managers, while capital simultaneously seeks to deepen the flexibility and precariousness of the workforce to its advantage. So we see this, for example, in the economist uh, the, the main left-wing uh, economics institution in the country, SEDLA, has documented uh, in urban areas uh, a higher rate of exploitation, that is to say longer work hours at higher intensity under the mass administration than in previous epochs. But this strategy of the state and of capital simultaneously has not unfolded seamlessly. And the class contradictions inherent to the development model are slowly generating cracks in the regime's edifice. Confrontations in the mining sector since as early as 2006 showed that right from the beginning, the model proposed by Morales was not going to be accepted as it rode over basic strategies and aims and demands of the labor movement that it purportedly represented. We then saw social revolts of a fairly large uh, type in late 2006, early 2007, in Cochabamba against the right-wing governor of the time, uh, which Morales declared as ultra-left adventurism against uh, a democratically elected government. Very interesting to note, because it was taking place very close to the time of the Oaxaca Commune and Rebellion in Mexico that most of the international left rightly celebrated, uh, which was also against an ostensibly democratically elected governor who was reigning terror inside of his state. Similarly, dynamics were unfolding in Bolivia. We saw a rebellion of the poor that went into a generalized departmental strike in the most impoverished state or, or province or department of the country, Potosi, in August 2010, for three weeks. And this was very significant because Potosi, the population of Potosi, had uh, voted for Morales in the uh, elections in, in December 2009 with 80%. So uh, half, a, half a year later, uh, they have a general strike uh, in opposition not in opposition in the sense of wanting to overthrow the government, but in uh, a, uh, a demand that the promises of the electoral campaign 
uh, actually be fulfilled. You then, then see a healthcare worker, teacher, and factory worker strike in May 2010, following on the heels of uh, Morales' May Day announcement of 5% increase in their wages. Now this was after 12% inflation the previous year, and thus the demand, hardly a revolutionary demand of all these sectors, was for a 12% increase in their wages. That is to say, an increase in wages that would have meant that their cost of living didn't deteriorate under, uh, under the mass administration. Uh, they rejected this. Uh, um, the vice president, followed by the president, uh, called, called them Trotsky's provocateurs, in, in working in line with the CIA to destabilize the state, and so on and so forth. Most recently, the major unrest uh, that we saw was in December 2010, uh, known as the Gasolinazo, in which the uh, basic subsidies for fuels um, were eliminated, something that none of the neoliberal orthodox regimes had even attempted, uh, leading to a several citywide uh, revolt uh, a relatively spontaneous revolt, which ended up reversing those subsidies or, or re reenacting the subsidization of basic fuels. And finally, in uh, beginning in August 2011 and, and going throughout October, the struggle that I document in the International Socialism Journal article of November, December of last year, the, the, the conflict over Tiffany's, which is a uh, indigenous territory recognized by the state in the Constitution, a self-governing autonomous zone, and a national park through which Brazilian capital and the Brazilian state wanted to build a uh, highway as part of their regional infrastructure development to reach the Pacific Coast to eventually have commodities uh, reach uh, the Asia-Pacific market, necessarily going through Bolivia. This uh, therefore pitted the Morales regime who one person I interviewed this summer called a mayoral puppet of the Brazil of Brazilian capital and the Brazilian state pitted the Morales regime acting in the interest of Brazilian capital against the dispossession of lowland indigenous groups who had not been fundamentally important to his election as distinct from the highland indigenous groups of the Aymara and Quechua majority in the country. So you see a number of different class dynamics uh, happening in that region. The Tiffany's March overturned the initial legislation uh, after various police uh, repression and so on of the march, overturned the initial legislation, but Morales has now attempted to reintroduce this as he has promised to reintroduce the elimination of gas subsidies uh, in the future. So you see these temporary reversals as popular classes uh, express growing conflict and so on, um, but with the administration seeking to come back to reintroduce under a, under a different guise the same legislation. So the arguments advanced in my books, but particularly in the latest book from Rebellion to Reform, clearly run against the standard accounts of the Morales government of both these left and right positions that I've described as caricatures of the actual process. Now, left critics of my position might reasonably ask whether I'm not being too hard on the Morales government, given the structural impediments 
of global capitalism and the various imperialist threats facing the Morales regime, and so on. Obviously, imperialism was and is a major issue for any left project, socialist or moderate, seeking to advance in a subordinate country like Bolivia. The country is forced to operate within an imperial hierarchy of states in the world system and is also subject to the market imperatives of global capitalism. Ultimately, for any nationally-based revolutionary alternative to capitalism to succeed, it would have to extend regionally and globally. And in this context, I think activists and committed scholars alike in the global north should take as their first priority in regard to Bolivia opposition to any and all imperialist intervention, whether it takes an economic, political, or military form, whether it takes an overt or covert form, or an indirect or direct form. But I want to argue that that is simply the, the, the basis level of, of left commitment. It takes us nowhere in terms of the complexities of how to relate to the Bolivian process and what to learn from it. And that ultimately, we express solidarity with the oppressed and exploited themselves and not with states that purportedly act in uncomplicated ways in their interests. And having set out that backdrop of anti-imperialism, it is also important to recognize at the same time the room for maneuver at the moment when Morales first assumed office in 2005. And here I want to speak against the kind of simplification of anti-imperialist analysis which suggests that imperialism is an unchanging static structure that at any and all time expresses itself with the same power and determination. The US in 2005, if we remember, was overextended militarily in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the International Monetary Fund and World, World Bank, the principal institutions through which, through which US capital had instituted neoliberalism in the 80s and 90s, had massively uh, drawn back from their capacity to condition the political economy in Latin America, not least because of the election of Hugo Chavez at a time when the oil price was spiking and the Venezuelan state was able to generate alternative lines of credit to sympathetic regimes without the conditionalities that the International Monetary Fund and so on had offered in the past. Likewise, with these massive levels of foreign exchange being generated and reserves, the room for autonomous action by these states was much more dramatic than many have suggested. The domestic right, meanwhile, in Bolivia, always a preferred channeling vessel of imperialism short of intervention, had been politically destroyed by 2005. Even if capitalists still owned and controlled the country's economy, obviously, they had no political project. The legitimacy of neoliberalism had been devastated under the weight of its own contradictions, and the three parties representing the traditional right were effectively gone from the scene. Instead of seeing this historical window as an opportunity to advance rapidly and to encourage the self-organization and self-activity of the oppressed and exploited to act out against foreign and national capitals, the Morales government instead fell into ritual elite negotiations with an autonomous right wing of the eastern lowlands 
whose power I want to suggest it vastly overestimate. Paradoxically, though, this willingness to negotiate with a feeble right opposition over the next two years allowed the oxygen for this right to rearticulate and actually become a threat, not of an alternative project, but with the capacity to destabilize through what was effectively a coup attempt by 2008. But we can't read into the, to the coup attempt of 2008 the strength of the right in 2005. That was effectively a product of the movement towards socialism failing to deepen and respond to the immediate interests that the revolutionary conjuncture had thrown up between 2000 and 2005. Now, I've been speaking for too long, so I'm going to conclude with the basic idea that the hope for Bolivia's future continues to be found with the overwhelmingly indigenous rural and urban popular classes themselves, organizing and struggling independently for themselves, autonomously from the mass government, against combined capitalist exploitation and racial oppression, with visions of simultaneous indigenous liberation and socialist emancipation guiding them forward as we witness on a grand scale between 2000 and 2005. Thank you very much. Thank you.